titled Annie at the Gates. There was a movie that came out several decades ago now called Enemy at the Gates. Uh, really good movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. It's about a sniper, uh, a German sniper and a Russian sniper in World War II. But uh, that title is one that I felt is fitting for the text that we're going to look at today. Again, since we're covering an entire chapter, I'm not going to make you stand and read it all at once. We'll just cover it as we go. But I was thinking about this sermon this week and getting it together and there, I don't know how many of you are baseball fans. If you're a Reds fan, you probably checked out a long time ago because they, they absolutely stunk, didn't they? A hundred losses, is that right? Was that right? You probably don't want to bring it up again. But uh, that, that's, that's not very good. But there was a lot of exciting things happening in baseball. You know, uh, Aaron Judge hit 62 home runs and set the, the record for the American League. Uh, Albert Pujols breaking 700. And so I was thinking about baseball anyway, and I stumbled across this illustration. Probably all of you at least have heard the name Babe Ruth, right? Not the candy bar, but the baseball player, Babe Ruth. Some of you in here probably went to the game. I think some of you are that old, aren't you? You went and saw Babe Ruth play. George, did you see Babe Ruth play? All right. <laughs> George just missed out on it. Well, most of us have heard of Babe Ruth, but we've probably not heard of a guy named Bob Pinelli. Not ringing a bell? Bob Pinelli was an umpire during the time that Babe Ruth played. And in one particular game, Bob Pinelli called Babe Ruth out on a questionable call, strike three. And Ruth was visibly upset, and as sometimes happened, kind of got in the umpire's face. And this caused the 40,000 fans in attendance to also let Bob Pinelli know what they thought about his call. And it is told that, that Ruth, as he was in the umpire's face, said this. He said, there's 40,000 people here who know that that last pitch was a ball. And Pinelli's answer was wonderful. says he responded coolly, That may be so, babe, but mine is the only opinion that counts. I want to preach to you today on a difficult topic, and that is the judgment of God. And it's a message that unfortunately, and I, I, I don't say this to be condescending, but you won't hear these types of messages in the majority of churches in America today. And it's a shame. It's a shame that we have so shied away from preaching the difficult things to giving a watered-down, feel-good, man-centered message all the time that folks are comfortable in church but dying in their sins right in the pews. And I believe that the time is too urgent to ignore the difficult and deep things of God at times. So we're going to look today at God's judgment. The Bible has a lot to say about it. And of course, one verse that we quote a lot, and you've probably heard is this. And I hope that you take it to heart. It's appointed unto man once to die. You may think that there's reincarnation or all sorts of other silly things, but according to the Word of God, it's appointed to man once to die. And after that comes judgment. We will all stand before God in some form of judgment when we leave this earth. And the question, straightforward question that I want to lead into this message with today is this. Are you ready to stand before God? Are you ready to stand before God? I want to look today at Daniel 5, and I want to hopefully use this example that Scripture gives us to answer that question, or at least help you answer that question. So let's look together uh, at Daniel 5. 
We're going to break it down into sections. I'm going to stray away from the traditional Baptist three-point sermon and give you five points today, but I'll move quick, I promise. So, verses 1 through 4, if you're taking notes, write this down. There is a judgment defied. There is a judgment defied. And I want you to notice right off the bat, in chapter 4 and, and previously, we have been dealing primarily with a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar, haven't we? And several times, Daniel and his friends have had run-ins with Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. Now we dive into chapter 5, and it starts off with King Belshazzar. What happened here? Uh, We don't hear anything about Nebuchadnezzar, any transition, all of a sudden there's a new king. Skeptics, for centuries, took this verse and this portion of Daniel and used it to try and disprove the validity of Daniel. Because there was no historic record of anyone in Babylonian history named Belshazzar. We would see in all the historical evidence that we had that there was a king Nebuchadnezzar and then the final king was his son Nabonidus. And that was the end. And so skeptics would look at this and they'd say, see, the Bible can't be trusted. It's talking about this king Belshazzar. And there is no such person. That was until there was some digging done by archaeologists that discovered these Babylonian tablets and they went into great detail about the Babylonian kingdom and guess who is mentioned by name along with dates and even that his death took place in the middle of a great feast. All of what is spelled out in Daniel. And so the skeptics in the 1920s when they found out that this was in fact historically accurate, fell on their faces and repented and told everybody that God was true and they were liars. No, they didn't do that. And they never do. But the reality is that God's Word is true no matter what skeptics and scoffers may say about it. So, how does he get here? How do we get here with him? Well, Nabonidus is the king after Nebuchadnezzar. But Nabonidus was not particularly fond of Babylon as a city. Loved the kingdom. Wasn't crazy about the town, so to speak. And so he wanted to go where the weather was a little nicer and where there was a different atmosphere. So he would spend his time in what was called at the time Arabia. And he had a son named Belshazzar. And he named Belshazzar what we would call a co-regent or a co-heir with him. And he let Belshazzar rule over the city of Babylon while he took care of the rest of the kingdom. So that's how we arrive at this place. They're governing at the same time together. Nabonidus is the big king and and Belshazzar is just kind of overseeing the town here, okay? So I, I think it's important that you understand that because it spells this out clearly in the Word of God and history has proven once again that God's Word is true. It's even interesting that it's so accurate that we have the exact date on which this takes place in those tablets that they found. And it's actually, this coming Wednesday will be the date. Uh, October 12th, 539 B.C. So 2,561 years ago, this Wednesday, is what took place, what I'm reading to you this morning. Pretty interesting to think about how, how everything falls together. So look at what it says. He made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and they drank wine in front of the thousand. There is digs that have been there are digs that have been done that say some of these ballrooms and some of these feasting areas were almost a mile long. 
I mean, imagine, I don't know of a building necessarily around here that we could compare that to that you go into. I mean, somewhere like Lowe's or Home Depot or one of those huge stores like that is probably as close. Imagine that's your dining room, you know, and he's got all these folks in there. Some people speculate, we can't prove this, but some people speculate that this was his birthday and he was celebrating having this big feast for his birthday. He's in his mid-30s at this time. And Daniel is an old man. He's in his mid or his early 80s at this time. Uh, so we, we, we went through quite a bit of history as we arrive at this place. But he's having this big party. He's got all these folks in there with him. And it's interesting that for whatever reason, he gets drunk, he's bored. Maybe those things have something to do with it. But I really believe this. He was old enough at the time to have known Nebuchadnezzar. And we read Nebuchadnezzar's testimony last week. And no doubt Belshazzar knew it. No doubt he knew that God had made Nebuchadnezzar lose his mind and cast him down for his pride. And he dwelt in the fields for seven years eating grass like a wild animal until he finally looked up toward heaven and God restored his mind to him. Belshazzar knew that. And yet, I believe what we see in verse, verses 1-4 through four is him defying God the one true God. He says, tell you what we're going to do. This is my kingdom now. And it will never fall. Now remember in, in Daniel 2, Daniel had already told Nebuchadnezzar the dream. He was the head of gold, but there were other kingdoms coming after him, wasn't there? He wouldn't be the last. But Belshazzar, in all of his pride and arrogance, says, I've got this. We are the most powerful people on earth. No one will ever defeat us. Certainly no one will ever defeat me. Matter of fact, we've already defeated these other gods. So why don't you go into the treasury, get the golden vessels that we took from Jerusalem, and bring them out, and we're going to use them like they're just red solo cups. We're going to use them like throwaway, disposable drinkware. And that's what they do in verses 1-4. through four. He's in there having a good old time. He's got his concubines which wasn't normal, guys. In these times, the men and the women separated themselves, except for certain things, and I don't think I need to go into detail of what was probably taking place at this festival. And so, that's the scene that we're looking at. And he was confident that no one would ever overthrow his kingdom, that he was good. And it reminded me of 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Says, well, says That verse says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. There are folks in the, day, in the world today that are shaking their fist at God. They are trying to be as immoral as and as wicked as they can be. And they laugh about it, and they jest about it, and they look up at heaven and say, what are you going to do about it? And in their arrogance and in their pride, they don't recognize the danger that they are one heartbeat, one breath, away from standing before that God and giving an account for their life. One of these days, for all of us, the clock of life is going to hit zero. Are you ready for that day? There's an old poem that says, The hands of life are wound but once, and no man 
has the power to tell just when those hands will stop at late or early hour. To lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's health is worse. To lose one's soul is such a loss that no man can restore. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, church, and he loses his soul? I want to ask you today, are you living, believer or unbeliever, are you living as though there is no judgment to come? Are you going through life in such a way that you're mocking God by the attitude that says, I've got time, I'll do it later, I'll live for God later, I'll devote myself later, this stuff's important now, when I get a little bit older, when the kids are grown, when I have more time, when I have more this or that, then I'll serve God. Are you that arrogant that God owes you more time? You've been blessed already with what He's given you. He gave us today. Are you living as though you're thankful for it? Do you care that you have loved ones that will face it? Did days and weeks and years go by and you never tell people about Jesus? You never invite people to church? You never warn them despite the fact that it's difficult? Despite the fact that it's awkward? Despite the fact that you might get rejected? I know all that and have faced all that and you will too. Jesus did too. But do you care enough? Do you believe enough in the judgment that they will stand before a holy God to tell them how they can be right? Are you living that way? Or are you defying God by saying, I'm living as though there is no judgment to come? Belshazzar defied the true God. And then let's look at verses 5-9 through because as he is defying God by his actions, the judgment, number two, there is a judgment declared. There is a judgment declared. We use this phrase to this day, the handwriting is on the wall. Imagine, they're at this big feast. They would set up these rooms in a horseshoe shape. So it was a horseshoe shaped room and at the head table was in the middle of that U. And behind them, they would stand up during these feasts and write toasts on the wall. He turns around and he doesn't see a toast on the wall. He sees a hand, like a man's hand, writing words on the wall behind him. And look at what it says happens. These fingers wrote opposite the lampstand. Verse 6 says, Then the king's color changed. Something bad happens when your color changes that fast. I had to go last week um, to the hematologist. And for whatever reason, I had a little bit of blood left that they didn't take at the hospital, so they decided they were going to get the rest of my blood. So I went in there, and they, they proceeded to take what looked like to me like a 55-gallon drum full of blood out of there. And all of a sudden, I think there was nine tubes on number eight. I told my wife, I was like, do you have any gum? I could feel it. I could just feel it. And all of a sudden, I mean, I, you could have wrung my shirt out. It was so wet. And, and the nurse and everybody, they was scared to death. I mean, when you make the nurse scared, that makes you scared because you're like, they've seen more than I've seen. And if they're nervous, I'm really nervous. They said I turned gray and everything. That's scary when you change colors. Something bad's happening, right? I hadn't ate and my sugar just dropped. But his color changed for another reason. He saw this writing on the wall. It says, and his thoughts alarmed him. I mean, sirens are going off. In his mind at this time. His limbs gave way. Some people say that that could be translated he lost his bowels. Can't be dogmatic about that, but it's very possible. 
and his knees knocked together. My point is this, even the scariest haunted house that you might go to isn't going to make you react like this. This man was scared out of his mind at what was going on. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he hadn't even fallen into the hands of the living God yet. He was just seeing the handwriting what was coming. And he was already petrified at the thought of what was happening. And yet it's interesting as we go through this, he does just what Nebuchadnezzar did. He calls the same old knuckleheads that, he'd been, that, his, that his grandfather had been dependent on, and they come in and they couldn't say what was going on either. They didn't know what this writing was. I mean, they could interpret it as far as what the words meant, but they couldn't give an explanation for what was being said there. And I believe the reason is 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person or the natural man does not accept the, spirit of, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. That's why it can be so discouraging when we witness to people, when we try to speak spiritual truth to people that are lost, and they reject it. Because that's all they can do. Until God opens their eyes. Until the Spirit convicts them. That's why I say it all the time, guys. You can't get saved anytime you feel like it. But when God is moving, and God is drawing, and God is convicting, and if today is that day for you, don't turn that away and say, I'll do it later, I'll do it next week, I'll do it when there's not so many people around, I'll do it when I'm not a guest in a strange church. You might not get tomorrow. He does not have to deal with you again. There is nowhere... Listen, we love to sing about grace and talk about grace and thank God this morning for grace. But there is nowhere in the Bible that says God is obligated to continue to show you grace over and over and over again until you finally decide you're ready to receive it. He gives us grace, and in that moment we have an opportunity. And if we don't do what He tells us to do, He is not obligated to keep coming back and, it's me again. You want to answer this time? There was a judgment declared after the king had defied it. And now I want you to look at verses 10-12. through 12. There's a judgment discerned. What do I mean there? Well, look what happens in verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen, de- the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let, your thoughts, let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. This is grandma. This is Nebuchadnezzar's wife coming in. This isn't Belshazzar's wife. The term can be used interchangeably. When they say father, mother, queen, she was still the queen mother, if you will. Just like we say the faith of our fathers, that doesn't necessarily mean our biological father, it's fathers as representatives, if you will. And so, she comes in and she says, grandson, it's not that bad. It was worse. But she's trying to calm things down. The king lived forever, don't don't get so upset Don't let your color change. I know a man. I want to tell you something. Verse 11 has hammered in my spirit all week long as I've put this message together. She tells him, don't worry about what's going on. Don't get so upset. There was a humorist, American humorist named Ken Hibbard. And he defined optimism, which is what we could say she was being here pretty optimistic. He said, optimism is a person who believes what's going to happen will be postponed. An optimistic person believes what's going to happen will be postponed. This was not going to be postponed. 
God's judgment will come right on time. You can't stop it. You can't sway it. It's going to happen. But the thing that jumped out at me, one of the things this week was verse 11. I want you to look at that for just a minute. She said, don't be alarmed. There is a man in your kingdom. One of the greatest needs that we have in American Christianity today is for there to be some men that are known by their church, by their families, and by the world as being people that are connected to God. There's too many people today that their whole experience of Christianity and people that they have talked to that claim to be Christians are nothing but a bunch of wishy-washy hypocrites who are in again and out again who don't serve God except pretending for an hour on Sunday. And I'm not trying to be intentionally harsh, but guys, I'm trying to be as serious as I can, and I'm trying to be as honest as I can. I am so over a Christianity that really doesn't change anybody, that's powerless. I'm so tired of dead church services. And I'm not just talking about in here. We have dead church services. I ain't going to boast and say every time we come in here, we're a lively bunch that's all about Jesus. Because there's times I look out here and I've seen more excitement at Brown Dawson than I have here. And I'm just being honest. And I'm not saying you got to jump. You know I don't expect you to jump and run around, but I do expect you to do more than barely breathe and keep oxygen in your lungs. Because God's been too good to us. And we need some people that are known by others to be able to get a hold of God when they need them. I'm thankful that there's people that when I know there's a need, I can call up and say, listen, I need you to get to the throne room of God for me. I need you to pray. I'm thankful that everybody prays for me. But I know that there's only a few people that I know is really praying. Not to say that you can't talk to God. Everybody has a connection with God. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that people who have lived it and are obedient, and when they knock, they got God on speed dial. You know what I'm talking about. You've had them grandmas and mamas and church members that would pray heaven down. And we need more people that pray heaven down. We need more people that the power of God is on their life so that when the world is falling apart, they say, go get that guy. Go get that lady. I've seen what God has done in their life. I've seen that they aren't just playing games with this thing. This isn't just some Sunday religious thing for them. This means something to them. They know God and God knows them. There is a man, she said. Get that guy. Nobody else in the kingdom can help you, but there is a man that can help you. I want to be that guy. I want to be the preacher that when there's something going on, they say, go get that man of God. He'll preach the truth to you. He'll pray for you. He'll lead you in the right direction. He'll tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Amen. Get that guy. Don't get the Joel Osteens and the Stephen Furtick's and the guys that puff up your head and make you want to live your best life now and will lead you straight to hell along the way. It feels good, friends. But when it feels good, a lot of times... The wages of sin is death and sin is pleasurable for a season and you can have fun all the way into the gates of hell. You can. You can march right down that broad road straight into hell and never realize where you were headed until it's too late. There is a judgment coming and I want us to have a church filled with people that when there is a need, people can say, go to that church. 
Get that guy. Get that lady. Get those kids. They aren't just playing games. They're not just in a youth group to eat pizza and go to corn mazes. They love Jesus. And they live it out in their schools. And they live it out in their homes. And they are different. There's something different about them. We got too many Christians that look just like the world. And then we wonder why the world wants nothing to do with the church. They can sleep in and have all the fun they want and bypass this. This is just a hindrance to them. And for some of you, it's a hindrance too. And it shouldn't be that way. You can have the real thing. You can have the real thing. It isn't just set aside for a select few folks. You can have as much of God as you desire. But it's up to you to follow Him when He leads. If you're always telling Him no, don't be surprised when He tells you no. When you want something. We sing where He leads me, I will follow. But I don't know how often we really do that or believe that. He said, she said, there is a man. Go get that guy. I pray today, if nothing else, you leave here today saying, God, make that my testimony, that people know when they need something, that I'm one that they got on speed dial, that I've lived my life in such a way, and the power of God is evident that they know. She says, get that guy. He helped your grandfather. The power of God was on his life. Look what it says. She says to him, In verse 11, in the days of your father, that's his grandfather, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians. He set him up over the whole kingdom. Get that man. She's discerning enough to know where to go when there's a need. And then this big section next, we'll look at verses 13 through 29. There is, number four, a judgment described. There is a judgment described. Remember, She sends for him. He comes in 82 years old by now. He's an old man. In Babylon still. Got there when he was about 14. He's 82. And he's still serving God. After all those years. And he was ready. He could have said, man, I'm trying to sleep. I ain't going in with them rowdy bunch of kids in that big banquet hall acting like fools. And talk to them. I don't want nothing to do with them. I'm going to stay in my apartment. Get somebody else. He got his cloak or whatever he needed. His cane. And he said, I'll be there. There's no retirement plan in the kingdom of God, guys. Too many people check out and go do other things. I don't know how many people that I know that used to serve God. I got a friend, and I won't name any names. I got a friend that was a pastor all of his life. Loved God, served God. He was the interim pastor. He would fill in wherever they needed him, and he did it faithfully. And I understand as you get older, your body gives out, physically can't do the things that you used to be able to do, and I'm not faulting him for anything. But he told me, he said, I'm not doing this anymore. He said, I'm going to find me a big church, a big, big church. And he said, where nobody knows me, and I'm going to go every Sunday or when I feel like it, and I'm going to walk in and sit down, And nobody's going to ask me to do anything because they don't know me. And he said, I'm going to walk out and leave and not do anything. And he's doing that still to this day. And I'm not faulting him. I'm not judging him. But I'm saying, to me, that's a sad ending to what was such a wonderful, fruitful life for all those years. Not saying he should still be up there preaching if he physically can't do it. Maybe God's got something else for him to do. But I'm positive God doesn't want him to just walk in and be hidden and walk out and be hidden and not do anything to help that church. Daniel was 82 years old. 
And when they called for him, he was ready to do what he could. He's still serving God. I'm sure that all those years haven't been easy. We know they haven't from just what we've read. But he didn't quit. He made it through the difficult times. He made it through the uncomfortable times. And when he was asked to do something for God, the excuses didn't come out. The reasons didn't come out. He was ready in season and out of season. And he said, I'll be there. I'll do my best. I can't walk like I used to be able to. My voice is frail. I can't thunder it out like I used to be able to do. But I'll be there. If I get a chance to tell somebody about Jesus, I'll be there. And I hope you can say the same thing today. Whether you're young or old, if you started on this journey with Jesus, I hope you don't get out of the race before you cross the finish line. I hope that you will run to win. I hope you will run with all your might. And if you have to change jobs along the way, that's okay. But I hope that you'll find a need and fill it. I hope that you'll stay active for God. I hope you'll remember that there is a judgment coming. And you can run well for most of your life, but finish well. Finish well. Serve Him like Daniel did. And not only was he committed and faithful, as he goes down, look at, look at what uh, the king offers him. He offers him something along the way. In verse 14, uh, he comes down and tells, and tells him uh, that there are some things that he would give Daniel if he was willing to do these things. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 16, he says, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make it known to me, its interpretation, listen to what he offers him. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and you shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Now, remember what I said at the beginning of the service? Nabonidus was the big king. He ruled over the whole kingdom. Belshazzar was the vice president. He ruled over Babylon. He's offering Daniel, speaker of the house, third in command, right, over the kingdom. That's basically his offer to him. Pretty tempting for a man. He, he's, old, he's up in years now. He's went through the mess and the trial. He could have just wrote it out. He could have said, man, finally, after all these years, I'm finally getting my blessing. I'm going to be third in command. God is going to, or the king is going to give me everything I want. I can take it easy and die happy. Look at what he says in verse 17. I love this. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Daniel was not for sale. Daniel was not for sale. The world may offer you everything that it has if you will just compromise a little bit. If you will just go its way. If you will just try it the way that it wants you to try it. If you will just busy yourself with other things, the world will offer it to you. And Daniel was not for sale. We, we too often think that just a little compromise here and a little compromise there is not that big a deal. I'll just miss Wednesday. I'll just stay home this Sunday. And before you know it, that one or two times that you've missed is now a habit. And nobody can drag you to church anymore. You, you let your Bible lay for a couple of days and before you know it, there's an inch of dust on it. You quit praying and now you don't pray anymore. It's just that little bit of time where we give in that things start to become a habit. It's so easy to allow ourselves to get swept away. And it happens so subtly that we don't even recognize it's happening to us. 
And then when someone does point it out, we get mad and we try to defend ourselves and we try to object to it. Whereas what we need to do is humbly accept and admit and confess and repent that we have gotten off track because all of us do. And if we'll admit it and confess it, God will do the rest. He will change our hearts. And Daniel was not for sale. He was not going to compromise no matter what the king offered him. And so he says, I will give you an interpretation. I'll tell you what it says. And he goes on to tell him that the kingdom is going to be divided, that it's going to be taken over by someone else. Now, listen to me. All the while that this is taking place, this big banquet is going on, for three months or so prior to this even, a kingdom called the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, two groups of people together in one kingdom, had been camped outside of the walls of Babylon. Now, if you remember, if you were with us when we started this series, I tried to explain to you what this city looked like. Walls, hundreds of feet high, 30 feet down into the ground. They had enough food stored up for the whole kingdom for 20 years. The Euphrates River ran through the city. They had plenty of water, fish, plants. I mean, you name it. There was a, a, a high outer wall a small opening, and then another wall 80 feet wide where they could drive chariots around. They had boiling oil and cauldrons on top. If somebody did make it over the first wall down into that little section, they got oil dumped on them, burning, boiling oil. This was a fortified city like nothing the world knew. They weren't concerned. Belshazzar wasn't concerned, even though Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom will not stand. It's going to come to an end. But in all his arrogance and in all his pride, he said, never going to happen. I'll drink from that God's vessels and not bat an eye because I'm not worried about him or them out there. And then when the writing on the wall came, he got scared for a moment. He gets Daniel in there. Daniel won't camp compromise. Daniel stands bold. And you would think, especially after what we saw with Nebuchadnezzar, he, he falls on his face, literally out in the field grazing, and turns to God and is converted. We don't see that from Belshazzar. Sadly, I want you to notice verse 29. After Daniel tells him what's going on, look what happens. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar goes ahead and gives him that anyway. Why is that significant? We read in our Sunday school lesson today from the book of James about people arrogantly making plans for their future. Belshazzar is not on his face saying, oh my God, forgive me. You just wrote on the wall. You warned my grandfather. Daniel is telling me what's coming. I repent and turn to you in faith. He says... You don't read this in the text, but this is what's going on. Thank you, Daniel, for your time. Here are some gifts to take on your way. Now excuse me while I go back to my party. And he goes right back to it. History records that while they were feasting, while they were dining and doing other things that they shouldn't have done, the Medo-Persian Empire had diverted the Euphrates River. And it began to make a channel in a different direction. In a place where there wasn't a gate and where the wall didn't go down that deep. 
And guess what happened while they were all in there feasting? The army came in under the walls. And they came into the banquet hall. And guess what? Have you ever seen the movie The Patriot? When they take all them people and put them in the church? Everybody's in one place. And all these folks, Belshazzar on down in one big room. And they walk in and there's a bloodbath. And listen, listen to what it says. I mean, the Bible describes it. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede, who was leading this army, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The most powerful kingdom on earth with one of the most arrogant kings that ever lived in a matter of hours went from controlling the entire world to no longer existing. Just like that. If God can end a kingdom in a matter of hours, how much more can He end your life in a moment? We're not ready to stand before God today. I say that because I see the way that the church operates in this country today. And we have a lot of blood on our hands. We are far too lukewarm. We are far too apathetic. We are far too lax to excuse ourselves and to justify ourselves. You're mad at me right now for even saying things like this. And I've prayed all week. I don't like when people's mad at me, but you can take it up with God. Because all I've done is preach what this book says. And I'm preaching to me too. I'm not for a minute saying that I got it all figured out and you all need to be like me. I'm saying we all need to be like Jesus. And we all need to honestly evaluate ourselves and say, am I ready to stand before God. Yes, you might be ready to fly off into glory at the rapture. That's not what I'm asking you. As a believer, are you ready to stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for your life? Have you been faithful to this church? Have you been faithful to God? Have you been faithful with your gifts? Have you been faithful with your time and your talents and your treasures? Only you can answer that. But I think if we're honest, we can all say, for the most part, there's a lot of areas that we need to work on. We had an outreach yesterday to go out and hand out door hangers to try to get our name out into the community. You know how many people was here? Me. Nobody. Not a single... And I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just saying. And I know stuff goes on and you can't be at everything. I understand that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying it for that reason. I'm saying, when we have opportunities, what are we doing with them? What are we doing with them? This judgment was delivered. We saw that in verse 30 and 31. That very night. It's a fearful thing, like I said, to fall into the hands of the living God. I pray that you're ready. Number one, I pray today that you're saved. You say, how can I be ready to stand before God? The only way that any of us can be ready to stand before God is to acknowledge that we have sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin means you break God's laws. If we went down the list, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever committed adultery? Have you looked on a woman in lust? Have you ever got mad at your brother or sister? On and on and on. We are guilty. And if you are guilty and you stand before the judge guilty, you will be sentenced. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's spiritual separation from God. That is your predicament today. You are separated from God. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how much money you've given to the church or other places. I don't care if you volunteer at the Senior Center or the Boys and Girls Club. You can't do enough good to wash away your sin. But Jesus did enough to pay for all of it. On the cross, the Son of God laid down His life. He willingly gave Himself for you. 
Now, how do you receive that? You receive it by faith. That just means you trust Him. You say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge it. I admit it. No more games. I am lost and I need you. If you can't do it, nobody can. But I'm going to trust that you can do it because you said you could. The Word declares you can. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He said, whosoever will, let him call upon the name of the Lord and he shall be saved. You have got to look away from yourself, look away from your church, look away from your baptism and look to Jesus and Him alone and you can be saved. And if you're saved today and you say, I'm, I'm lukewarm, I admit it, I've let the world get in my way, I've let bitterness get in my way, I've let priorities get in my way and I want to live for Jesus. You're still failing don't say, well, I can't come forward and make that kind of commitment because I can't ever keep it. We understand that and He understands that. But that's no excuse to just stay where you're at and wallow in your indifference. You have got to make a move to say, I refuse to stay here. God is drawing me today and I'm going to answer the call and I'm going to ask Him to help me. I want to be better. I want to live for Him. I want to have my joy back and my excitement back and my fire back. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to come in here and fake it you know, a lot of times we try to encourage people to worship and I think a lot of times is you're ashamed to worship because you've got all this sin and all this baggage and you say, God, I'd like to raise my hand. God, I'd like to shout every once in a while. But I feel so unworthy and I feel so weighed down that I just can't do it. And you keep coming back every week and keep saying the same thing. Why don't you get rid of the baggage so you can? Why don't you get rid of the sin so you can? He's done everything necessary. For you to not just have life, but to have abundant life. And you are dragging your feet like you can barely walk. I know life is hard. And we all have difficult days. And that's why we need each other. On the days when we can't rejoice, then there's somebody that can grab the corner of that mat and carry me to Jesus. But there's other days where I need to pick up the corner and carry you, and I'm trying to do that today. I'm trying to get you to look to Christ and live for Him. And follow Him. Because there is a judgment coming and I want you to be ready. If the rapture comes today, I want you to go with us. But if you go to be with Him, I want you to be ready to stand before God. I want you to be able to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want you to use your gifts. I want your kids to know about Jesus. I want to see you make the effort to get them here. I know it's hard on Wednesdays. You're tired. You worked all day. Believe me. I understand. I do. I did it for years and I drug my daughter here too. It's hard. And maybe you can't always make it, but I think we excuse ourselves far too often when we could make it. I think sometimes you just got to push. Push through the things. Push yourself. Strive. And you'll get there. I want to close with this verse. I'm going to invite Phyllis and Austin and Shane to come. Israel, as it happened many times, was standing before God in judgment. The time of judgment had arrived. And the prophet Amos this time was, was leveling the judgment. And I want to read to you what he says in Amos 4.12. And I'm going to close. God says this to Israel. And you think He says it to us today. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. He's going to do what He says He would do. Prepare to meet your God. I hope today if you leave here, you're prepared to meet God. And if you're not, that you'll do something about it before you leave. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that today You've made a way for us. That judgment is coming. That You will right all wrongs. That You will fix 
and recreate this world. But God, I pray that the folks listening and watching are ready for that, that they don't just assume they are, that they don't just think they are, that they know for certain, based on the sure Word of God and the Spirit within them, that they're ready. And if they're a believer today, and they've straddled the fence, and walked with one hand in the world, with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, that today they would get serious, God. That they would see the great need of the hour and get busy and get active. God, move in this invitation. Help us to see what we need to do and to do it today in Jesus' name. Amen.